Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 28, Oh Brother, Where Art for Provisional IRA. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Design what we design. Dunk the clown when we dunk the clown. And today I'll be discussing Season 2, Episode 15, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? which originally aired on February the 21st, 1991. And I'm going to be talking about the bombings of London's Paddington and Victoria stations by the Provisional IRA, which happened on the 18th of February 1991, just three days before Oh Brother Where Art Thou first aired. So a cheery bit of terrorism to look forward to from me. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org which one probably quite familiar retrorino certainly did. Tim Worthington has eeled to put us out of our Ralph Mellish-related misery from last week. So you may remember that Hans Molman's driving licence bore the name Ralph Mellish in his debut appearance in Principal Charming, and I heard it was a Monty Python reference, but not exactly what. Well, Tim tells us this. Roger Mellish, not Ralph, is a character from Monty Python's Matching Tie and Handkerchief, the world's first three-sided record, to whom absolutely nothing happens in a spectacularly dramatic fashion. It appears as a direct lead-in to the cheese shop sketch, although for Tim's money the best sketch on the album is Wasp Club Stroke Tiger Club, which I assume makes sense. Those were all some words, so (laughs) thank you very much, Tim. Uh, Also just to mention, by sheer coincidence, that I just saw, not half an hour before we started, the Simpsons episode with Simon Singh in. Oh, did you? Yep. Season 29, episode 10, Haw Haw Land. There's another guest star in that episode, but we mentioned him last episode and he doesn't need any more publicity, so we'll just kick on, I reckon. Okay. Surely can't be long until we're in an episode, eh? (laughs) Surely plots are thin enough on the ground now that Homer will have to work as a pensions data analyst or get into Norwich City soon. Oh, yeah, yeah. Timo Pukki is a guest voice. (laughs) Oh, yes. And while I'm on a roll, just to mention, uh, I've done some recording with... Tim Worthington recently. Um, listen out for episode 50 of Looks Unfamiliar and a special bonus coming your way. While we're plugging podcasts, I should say that if you're into current affairs in a magazine format, the pod delusion is back. So go and check that out because it's really interesting. Excellent. So this aired on February the 21st, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was number one in the UK hit parade at that stage? We're in a real rut here, as Do the Bartman, I Want to Give You Devotion, and 3AM Eternal are at 1, 2, and 3, respectively. And we've talked about all of those. And at number four, it's... (sighs) Get Here by Alita Adams. I honestly couldn't think of anything to say about that at all, interesting or otherwise. So I was about to stoop to number seven and visit once more with Kylie Minogue and her then hit What Do I Have To Do? When I thought, no. (laughs) For once in your life, Hirons, challenge yourself a little. Mm. So we are doing Alita Adams. Okay. It's it's gone straight over my head so far. I've no idea who this person is. Okay. Well, you're you're about to find out. I reckon you'll remember as we go along. But let's see. If nothing else, it'll really up the 90s-ness of our Spotify playlist, (laughs) to which I'll probably add Kylie as well. Mm -hmm. Because Kylie. This song was written by Brenda Russell, and first released, as performed by her, in 1988, reaching a respectable number 37 on the Billboard charts. It was apparently inspired by seeing some hot air balloons. And people who remember the song, possibly not Tom at the moment, um, might remember there's a line in the song that goes, You can make it in a big balloon. So if that ever stood out to you, you now know why. Uh, no. So Alita Adams heard it and decided to record it for her 1990 album, Circle of One. Not to be confused with Circle One by The Germs. Not that you'd ever mistake the two, because one is superior quality American hardcore punk, and the other is by The Germs, haha. But no, seriously, go and listen to The Germs, they're a very important act. 
See, this is how difficult it is to concentrate on Get Here, which is an incredibly boring song. Um, let's get on message again. So, yeah, go on. who is Alita Adams at this stage? Well, before the release of Get Here, she was best known in the UK as an occasional singer for Tears for Fears. Oh, all right. Yep, heard of them. And their Roland Orzabal actually produced this single. She was featured quite heavily on the Seeds of Love album, where Tears for Fears tried to be the Beatles and it really didn't work. <laughs> um, if anyone remembers the single Woman in Chains, that's her duetting with Roland. Oh, I see. Yeah, I've heard that song. I didn't like it. Right, yeah. It's an all-star cast for that one, though, because uh, Phil Collins drums for the second half of the song only. What? Uh, and Pino Palladino is on fretless bass, which I believe was a musician's union requirement for all 80s singles. See, I've done it again. Yeah. I'm, I'm off on Pino Palladino. Yeah, but Tears for Fears are far more interesting. True, true. Okay, back to the track. Right, so anyway, Alita bangs us out January 1st, 1991. So why the seven-week wait for this, which is its highest UK chart position? Well, mm-hmm. it's, it's now February 1991, and we're kind of at peak Gulf War. So it's become a bit of an anthem for US and UK families waiting for their relatives in the forces to come back home. Oh, that's with its, sad. With its plaintive refrain of, I don't care how you get here, just get here if you can. Uh, now I know what it is. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Now that you've said that line, I know what it is. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 And, you, and you can see my trouble in finding the, the enthusiasm to talk about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Alita would not hit these giddy heights again, but last released an album in 2017, with her recording career having spanned nearly 40 years at this point. Mm-hmm. And Pino Palladino is now in The Who, so there's a turn <laughs> up for the books. The US viewership of this episode put it 26th in the ratings, with a Nielsen of 15.4 equivalent to 14.1 million viewing households, and to the surprise of no one by now, it was Fox's highest-rated show of the week. Mm-hmm. The production number is 7F16, so we're still one ahead. I think that writes itself in the next episode. And the writer is Jeff Martin, who we first discussed relatively recently in episode 19, Dead Webpage Society. The chalkboard gag was I Will Not Sell Land in Florida, which I assume must have been semi-topical, but I didn't wind up researching that because I spent so long mm. on Alita Adams. <laughs> um, and the couch gag sees an initially missing Maggie poke her head out of Marge's hair. But what actually happens? Well, it's a bombastic opening as Abe and Jasper go to see the new McBain movie. <laughs> and whilst complaining about its tacked-on romantic subplot, Abe has a heart attack. Like father, like son, as we'll soon be finding out. Luckily, it's only a mild one. And it interrupts a family dinner that was about to go south, so probably for the best. Abe is moved to provide a near-deathbed confession, in which, and let's not sugarcoat this, he reveals that he had sex (laughs) with a sex worker Mm. at a carnival whilst courting Homer's still-unnamed mother. And that when the carnival returned to town a year later, she presented him with a son. Mona, for it is she, but we don't know that yet, Mm Later makes Abe swear he'll never tell Homer, which he's doing right now. Given that the mystery half-brother was born out of wedlock, Bart gets to say bastard repeatedly. He does. And so do I. Tom can't bleep me as I'm using it in a factual sense. I know, I know. I used the word bastard in the factual sense several episodes ago when I was talking about William the Conqueror. Yes, yes. Would you like to join me in a quick bastard, Tom? Uh, Yeah, William the Conqueror was also known as William the Bastard. Bastard, good fact, that. <laughs> uh, anyway, bastards aside, Homer plays... A... <laughs> anyway, bastards aside, Homer pays a visit to Shelbyville Orphanage, right across the street from where it used to be, where we get a forerunner to the Mr. Thompson scene as he fails to pick up on some heavy hinting. Mm-hmm. Eventually establishing that his half-brother is called Herbert Powell and lives in Detroit... I'm not doing that scene justice, by the way. Homer's exchange with the orphanage worker is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, yeah. He scours the phone book and speaks to his half-brother, who suggests the family join him at his place, which is established to be just a little bit better than 742 Evergreen Terrace. As they get closer, they start to get a sense that Herb is quite the presence in his locale. And as it turns out, the bastard's rich. He's the boss of Powell Motors, 
And whilst they're losing ground to the Japanese and naming cars after hungry old Greek broads, <laughs> the company is still doing very, very well. As, apart from some loneliness, is Herb. Yep, there are no problems on the horizon for old Herb Pal. Over the horizon come Homer and Co. Marvelling at the ability to summon a cook at 4am on Christmas morning to make pork chops, whilst Herb marvels back at the sight of a family born in wedlock. After spending five seconds catching up on Marge's entire life, he moves on to being Unky Herb and enjoying time with Bart and Lisa, including making it in a big balloon. But it's all to the detriment of his business concerns. Abe is also on his way, having begged Homer not to do anything stupid. And it's actually technically not Homer that immediately does the stupid thing. It's Herb. Seeing that Homer shares his disdain for modern American cars, he hires Homer as a design consultant for his new car, which will eventually be called the Homer, thus kind of breaching the rule about not having Greek names. Mm. Homer immediately suggests a number of surprisingly camp design features for it in the next couple of scenes, which obviously I'm now going to ask Tom to list right now with no prior warning. Tom? Uh, well, he wants a big beverage holder. Yep. He wants... Horns everywhere. Yep. Because I totally agree with them there. You can never find a horn when you're mad. Absolutely. Um, and what should they all play? Oh, they should all play La Cucaracha. As all horns should. Which is a great little touch. <laughs> Although, I wouldn't like it if a horn played cu La Cucaracha when you're angry at someone. Hey, you cut me off! Da -da 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 no! Don't want that. It's more of a celebratory horn, that, isn't yeah. it? Perhaps all cars need two horns, then. Yeah, the fun horn and the angry horn. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, oh, yeah, well, what else does he ask for? So he ends up getting uh, a dome in the back that's soundproof to, like, restrain the kids in. Yes, yes. Um, it's oh, and a little, and a little uh, ball on the top of the aerial so that you can find your car. Absolutely. Do you want a, do you want a stick or twist there? Is that a... Oh, I'm going to stick. I can't think of any more. Okay, well, you did really well there. Um, tail fins... Oh, yes. Uh, along with bubble domes is one of the things he says never goes out of um, fashion. Um, shag carpeting, which he actually mentions in the background while the worker is on the phone to Herb, so it's quite difficult to make that one out. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Good spot. And also, when he guns the motor, he wants people to think the world is coming to an end. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, all of this upheaval causes his new colleagues to describe him as the opposite of this statement. A brilliant man with lots of well-thought-out, practical ideas. He's ensuring the financial security of this company for years to come. Oh yes, and his personal hygiene is beyond reproach. <laughs> but Herb doesn't care as he's discovered Itchy and Scratchy. Specifically the episode Sunday Bloody Sunday, where Scratchy goes to a soda fountain and Itchy blends him into a drink. Mm. And the fact that Sunday Bloody Sunday has come up is kind of almost a scary coincidence, given what I'm going to be talking about. Oh, okay. Then comes Homer's moment of idiocy. Well, it had to be coming. The designers show him a concept for a car that includes everything he asked for and yet somehow manages to make it look sleek and futuristic. Mm. He rips it up and provides his own very crude drawing of a 70s style eyesore. And left with no choice, they make it. Mm -hmm. At the official unveiling of what is described as the car of the 90s, Apparently attended by His Holiness Pope John Paul II, Herb sees the car for the first time. Powerful like a gorilla, yet soft and yielding like a Nerf ball. <laughs> they are my two favourite similes combined. It's brilliant. And instantly Herb realises he is screwed. His company is bought by Kumatsu Motors, makers of excellent snow ploughs, as we'll later find out, and he loses everything just as Abe arrives to see his golden goose has been shot down. But it's all kind of worth it, as Bart tells Homer he thought his car was cool. And that's it. Another great episode. Mm, mm. It's, it, it, yeah, yeah, it's brilliant, that one. And it's great seeing Danny DeVito cast as Herb Powell, because he does a fantastic job of it. Yeah. But that is back when, if you had a celebrity on The Simpsons, they would have a bespoke part written for them yeah and it would and it would really suit them so there's going to be other guest stars as the show goes on but yeah danny devito was her powell is great 
It's not like we'll have Blink-182 as Blink-182 uh, because Blink-182 want to be on the show. Yeah, uh, and, and Tony Hawk. Bye, Tony Hawk. I've got to go, Tony Hawk. But you know Tony Hawk? Ugh. Yeah. Same episode, that, actually. Is it? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Shoehorn did a few there, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, obviously, I always talk about character debuts, and let's start with the one debut that we all remember from this episode. One of Dr. Hibbert's long-lost brothers. <laughs> the director of the Orphanage is one, and Bleeding Gums Murphy will eventually be revealed to be another. No, I'm not going to jerk you around anymore. Let's get straight to her pal. The product of a transaction between Abe Simpson and the carnival worker whose name is revealed to be Gabby in a book called The Simpsons Uncensored Family Album, released in 1992, which can actually be considered prime canon, as characters and situations introduced in that book have later appeared or been referenced in episodes. So there we go. Said book also reveals that Herb's adoptive parents are called Edward Powell and Mililani Powell, nay Osler, uh, and they had three daughters who were Herb's adoptive sisters, Coco, Wanda, and Carla. But none of that matters because none of them appear in the show. What, what, why would someone even bother making that up? Doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, don't get it. <laughs> it was a it was a comedy spin-off cash-in book. Mm. Uh, to decorate the bathrooms of the UK. Fair it's enough. Also worth noting that the hideousness that is season 15, episode 4... The Regina monologues featuring the war criminal Tony Blair reveals that both Homer and Herb have a further half-sibling. Of course they do. Their English half-sister, Abby, sired when Abe was based there during World War II. But let's all just try to pretend that episode doesn't exist, eh? Herb eventually went to, surprise, surprise, Harvard. Yes. (laughs) And formed Powell Motors, which we've obviously just seen collapse. But he'll be back later to chase his fortune again in Season 3, Episode 24, Brother, Can You Spare Two Dimes? And actually does appear very briefly in two other episodes. So he's an important character that's actually a Simpson family member. How come he doesn't appear more often? Well, quite apart from his socio-economic mismatch with the core family, he's also got a celebrity voice. That of, of course, Danny DeVito. Mm -hmm. Let's just throw in a little about him as well. Rising to fame with a role in Taxi in the late 70s, early 80s, he became an unlikely Hollywood star with roles in Twins, Romancing the Stone, Throw Mama from the Train, and a pretty good turn as the Penguin in Batman Returns. Mm -hmm. Plus voice roles in Hercules and Space Jam. (laughs) Gotta get Space Jam in there. For the last 13 years, he's been appearing as Frank in It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia a role that could not be further from that of the rich and family-oriented soul that is Herbert Powell. And I think he's great in both roles. I think Danny DeVito's actually really good. Mm -hmm. It's a real shame we don't see more of him in The Simpsons, but this was absolutely the peak of his commercial powers. So I I just kind of assume they couldn't afford to bring him back. And Mm. if they could have done, he would have been busy. Mm. And he is credited as Danny DeVito in the credits, isn't he? He is, yes. Yeah, because... That was a that was a bit of a weird thing in Early Simpsons where you had a couple of actors and various other stars whose voices were credited to someone else because for whatever reason they didn't want their own names to be associated with the show. Yeah. But not Danny DeVito. He's, he's a cool guy. It's like, I mean, The Simpsons, great. And of course, we're not far from uh, Sam Etik's appearance uh, <laughs> in, a, in an yeah. upcoming episode. Um, and also Michael Jackson, whatever he was... Uh, Pretending to be. Niagara. The countdown continues. Uh, I also realised while we were watching it that Mona Simpson debuts in this episode. But frankly, to discuss her now would lack important context, so we'll we'll wait a while longer for that one. Yeah, yeah. Did you know that I couldn't find many did you knows about this one? (laughs) Uh, So here's a very spurious one. Uh, I'm not sure if this necessarily counts, but we do have the Simpsons Universe version of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Of course. Radio Wolfcastle. And the actual Danny DeVito in the same episode. Which, if you squint hard enough, could be a Twins reference. See, that's how desperate I was for Did You Know this time. Yeah. But I've got a doozy for a second one. There's a real Homer car. Eh? Someone built the damn thing. No. Or at least heavily modified an existing car to look like one. (laughs) Really? Yep. Uh, It's a place called uh, Porcubima Motors... Uh, it was raced and finished in fifth place 
in the 24 Hours of Lemons race <laughs> in Buttonwill, California. Part of a, shall we say, less politically controlled racing series than Formula One or IndyCar, and one that seems to poke fun at the concept of motorsport whilst also putting on entertaining races. And if Lemons isn't a good enough secondary reference for you, yeah. the car has bought license plates. Oh, that's amazing. Look but, it up, you'll find it. It's, uh, oh, I need, I need to check that out. That, that's amazing. So, there we go. That was Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And now, the provisional IRA. Take it away, Tom. Uh, yes, so, uh, like I say, some, some, some cheery terrorism for you. So, okay, so just three days before Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? was first aired in the States... The Provisional Irish Republican Army set off a bomb at Paddington Station, followed by one at Victoria Station a few hours later. Before I get onto the details of the attack, I want to go over the state of play in regards to the activities of the IRA, Loyalist paramilitaries, the British government and the Northern Ireland peace process back in the late 80s and early 90s. But first, a disclaimer. But first, a disclaimer. As I went over in episode 17, Two Cars in Every Garage and Three Eyes on President Mary Robinson, I believe in a united Ireland. So the British have been dumping on Ireland for 800 years, but Ireland has its own language and culture, and as we talked about in the last episode, I believe in the right to self-determination, and I believe that Ireland should be one country under the Republic. I'm also a little bit of a Republican rather than a monarchist, so that kind of adds to it. I believe I made my uh, feelings clear on that in the last mm-hmm. episode. But uh, yes, if I could just take another another moment to say, no more royal family. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <laughs> on that episode, I also said that I'd go over Northern Ireland and the Troubles at another time. And seeing as I'm talking about an attack by the provisional IRA, I thought, what better time to do it than now? So how have we ended up with the province, state, whatever you want to call it, of Northern Ireland? As discussed back in episode 17... Christianity was introduced to Ireland around the start of the 5th century. By the time of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, the island of Ireland was staunchly Catholic. Following the Nine Years' War between Irish chieftains and England, the start of the 17th century saw the colonisation of the north of Ireland in what has come to be known as the Plantation of Ulster. Thousands of English-speaking Protestants were brought in from England and Scotland by King James I in order to civilise the region. And the project had mixed results. So although the settlers from England and Scotland numbered tens of thousands, it wasn't as many as it could have been, as in 1607, the Virginia plantation at Jamestown started. So everyone went off to America. Attempts were made to convert the local Catholic population to Protestantism, but they weren't very successful, partly due to the language barrier. The settlers spoke English and the locals spoke Irish. In 1641, Catholics in Ulster staged a revolt against the Protestant landowners, and thousands of them were killed. The next year, the Scottish government sent 10,000 troops to quell the rebellion, and they killed thousands of Catholics in reprisals. So what these events show is that Catholics and Protestants killing each other in their thousands in Northern Ireland is nothing new. It's been happening for centuries. So in 1642, things were made more complicated by the advent of the English Civil War. In short, the war saw the royalist forces of the Catholic King Charles I up against the forces of Parliament, led by the Protestant Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell would eventually prevail, and his new model army would conquer Ireland for the English Commonwealth. The next major event in the region was the so-called Glorious Revolution of 1688. The English Parliament invited the Dutch Protestant William of Orange to bring an army to England to depose the Catholic King, and William's father-in-law, James II. James fled to Ireland, where he had support among the Irish Catholics. William's forces pursued James into Ireland and conclusively defeated him at the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. And to this day, the Battle of the Boyne and other key dates in the Williamite Wars are commemorated by groups such as the Orange Order and the Apprentice Boys of Derry. About once a week, uh, in terms of marches through Liverpool city centre, or so it seems. Uh, Yeah, yeah. When marching season is on you get marches through Liverpool because there is an Orange Lodge in Liverpool. And I really, really hate it. It's Because they're basically saying, right, we have power, we can shut down the roads, we can march when we want, and tough, if you don't like it. Yeah. Yeah, I can't stand the marches at all. Anyway. In 1798, another rebellion occurred against the British in Ireland. However, this one wasn't exclusively Catholic. It was orchestrated by the United Irishmen, a revolutionary group 
who were inspired by the recent French and American revolutions and who wanted Ireland to become a republic, free and independent from the British. They were supported by a thousand French soldiers who landed in County Mayo in the northwest of Ireland. This rebellion was soon put down by the British. In response, the British passed the Act of Union, and on January 1st, 1801, Britain became the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. So the whole of Ireland was incorporated into the UK, and the Cross of St. Patrick was added to the Union Jack. The political situation continued to be very complicated throughout the 19th century. Some people, notably Protestants and Ulster, wanted Ireland to remain a part of the UK. Others, like the Irish Republican Brotherhood, wanted Ireland to be a republic. Other people were somewhere in the middle, supporting a degree of autonomy for Ireland while still keeping it part of the UK, or at least in the British Empire. Around the middle of the 19th century, the Irish Republican Brotherhood was formed. This was a secret society with the aim of establishing an Irish Republic. They were assisted by a similar society in the USA, where of course there was a large Irish population. The organisation in the States was the Fenian Brotherhood. Nowadays, Fenian is a bit of an antiquated term often used in a derogatory sense against Irish Catholics, but back then it was an umbrella term for the two brotherhoods. They organised something pretty radical, the Fenian Dynamite Campaign. Orchestrated by Jeremiah O'Donovan Rosser, an Irish exile living in the USA, the campaign saw dynamite attacks on British targets, with the first attacks occurring in 1881. The bombings were fairly haphazard, and there was even an incident where three bombers were killed after the bomb they were carrying went off early. While these attacks were small fry compared to what was to come, it showed that the idea of bombing targets on the British mainland is a lot older than people might think. The British police responded by forming the Special Irish Branch to deal with the bombers. Later on, the Irish bit of the name was dropped, and they just became Special Branch. Oh, right, okay. So that's where Special Branch comes from. So in 1882, Charles Stuart Parnell reformed the Home Rule Party into the Irish Parliamentary Party. Home Rule bills were brought before Parliament in the 1880s, but they all failed. Eventually, a Home Rule bill was passed by the Liberal Prime Minister Herbert Asquith, but as the compromise to the Ulster Unionists, six counties in the north could opt out of it. By this time, Northern Ireland was a tinderbox. 450,000 men had signed a pledge written by Unionist leader Edward Carson called the Ulster Covenant, which vowed that they would resist home rule. The Ulster Volunteers were formed, and they were armed. In response, nationalists formed the Irish Volunteers, another armed group around 200,000 strong. Ireland, and Ulster in particular, looked to be on the brink of civil war, but this was overtaken by another event of 1914. Do you know what that was? The start of the First World War? Uh, no, it was the opening of the Panama Canal. Uh, no, you're right, it was... <laughs> it was, of course, the start of the you, First World War. You finally asked me a question <coughs> about history that is so <laughs> dunderheadedly easy mm -hmm. that I've got it right. Hooray! <laughs> So the two sides called a truce in order to fight against the German Empire, and the issue of home rule was suspended, sort of put on the shelf for a bit. However, the Irish Republican Brotherhood saw the war as an opportunity. On Easter 1916, they led a force that took control of Dublin in the events known as the Easter Rising. The British responded by sending in the army, and the rebels surrendered. The leaders of the Rising did not have universal support among the Irish population, but that changed when all the leaders of the Rising, other than the American-born Eamon de Valera, were executed by the British. That act brought a lot of sympathy to the Republican cause, and in the election that followed the end of the war in 1918, Sinn Féin, the Irish Nationalist Party led by de Valera, won 73 seats. Rather than taking their seats at Westminster, the 73 MPs formed their own parliament in Dublin. They established an army, calling it the Irish Republican Army, or IRA for short. The issue of Home Rule resurfaced. In Westminster, the Government of Ireland Act of 1920 was passed. This partitioned Ireland and Northern Ireland was created from six counties of Ulster, with its own Parliament. However, the Act never applied to the rest of Ireland due to the Irish War of Independence, the subsequent Anglo-Irish Treaty, and the Irish Civil War over its acceptance. The Treaty allowed Northern Ireland to opt out of the newly created Irish Free State, which it subsequently did. From its inception, the history of Northern Ireland was marred by bloodshed. The IRA were active in Belfast, and to combat them, the Northern Irish government created the Ulster Special Constabulary, which was largely made up of ex-UVF members. Together with the Royal Irish Constabulary, they fought the IRA and hundreds were killed. 
1922, the Royal Ulster Constabulary, the RUC, was formed by the Northern Irish government to take over from the RIC. Many Protestants signed up to be officers in it, but few Catholics did. So that's the origins of the RUC. In the early 20th century, Northern Ireland was run to heavily favour Protestants. Gerrymandering was common, as were rather odd voting practices. So rather than one man, one vote, or indeed one woman, one vote, commercial companies had a number of votes according to their size, and tenants couldn't vote for themselves. So their landlords voted on their behalf. So if you were a rich Protestant landlord renting out your houses to 20 poor Catholics, you got 21 votes. Right. That's, uh, yeah. yeah. No, no problems with that. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, so when people talk about discrimination against Catholics in Northern Ireland, it was very much being done by the state. So these practices kept the Ulster Unionists in power in the Stormont government for 50 years. Towards the end of the 60s, a period known as the Troubles began. It's hard to point to an exact event, but discrimination against Catholics was still rife back then, and people, inspired by Martin Luther King and the civil rights movements in the States, started to demand their rights. The first real flashes occurred in the city of Derry, which is in the west of Northern Ireland, close to the border with the Republic. Civil rights protesters went on the march, and the police banned them. In January 1969, the marches were attacked by off-duty policemen in the Burnt Tollet Bridge incident. On April 19th, police went to the home of Samuel Devaney, a Catholic not involved in the march, and beat him and his daughters with batons. He later died of his injuries, and he's believed to be the first victim of the Troubles. By then, the residents of the Bogside area had put up barricades to keep the police out, and the mural, You Are Now Entering Free Derry, had been painted. Then on August 12th, the Apprentice Boys, a Protestant group, arrived in Derry to commemorate the Siege of Derry, which was a battle of the Williamite Wars. Their presence provoked a riot which lasted for three days, and became known as the Battle of the Bogside. It would see the RUC use CS gas canisters against the protesters. To restore order, the British Army were brought in. Initially, the arrival of the army was welcomed by both loyalists and nationalists, as they were seen as a neutral force. However, shortly after arriving in Northern Ireland, 3,000 troops imposed the Falls Curfew, where residents of the Lower Falls area of Belfast had a three-day curfew imposed on them. Also around this time, paramilitary activity was on the increase. The Ulster Volunteer Force had declared war on the IRA, and they began their own bombing campaign, which started with an attack on the RTE studios in Dublin. So terrorist bombings across the border was not a one-way street. In late 1969, there was a split in the IRA, with the formation of the Provisional IRA. Throughout the 70s, there were various bombings, shootings, and other incidents that saw huge loss of life on all sides of the community. In 1972, leaders of the Provisional IRA met with the British to discuss a truce. Although a truce did not emerge, a condition for the talks was that any prisoner in prison for troubles-related offences be given special category status, effectively making them prisoners of war. So they got to wear their own clothes and had extra contact with people, that kind of thing. Meanwhile, the British Army launched Operation Demetrius. This was their policy of internment, which saw anyone suspected of being an IRA member imprisoned without trial, flying in the face of habeas corpus and any notion of justice. The people of Derry once again protested. The army opened fire and killed 14 people in what became known as Bloody Sunday. Later that year, the official IRA announced a ceasefire, but provisionals, by now a splinter group, were still at large. On July 21st, 1972, they exploded 22 car bombs in one day in Belfast, in what's become known as Bloody Friday. The British attempted to resolve the situation by taking control of law and order away from the Northern Irish Parliament and running the police directly from Westminster. When the Northern Irish Parliament refused, Westminster responded by dissolving it and bringing in direct rule. In an effort to bring the troubles to an end, the British government wrote a white paper that proposed a power-sharing executive, which would see the government of the Republic of Ireland have a consulting role. This was known as the Sunningdale Agreement, and it came into force with the creation of a Northern Ireland Assembly, with its members elected by proportional representation in 1973. Unionists, including Ian Paisley, were opposed to it, and called for a general strike in 1974. A week after the strike started, the executive collapsed and direct rule was re-established. 
So there you have an attempt at power sharing a good 25 years before the Good Friday Agreement. It was just scuppered by unionists. 1974 also saw the Birmingham and Guildford pub bombings by Provisional IRA. More on Birmingham in a future show. It also saw the Provisionals call a Christmas truce, but on the day before they blew up Ted Heath's former home. Fortunately, no one was in it. The start of 1975 saw paramilitary groups fighting each other, with members of the UVF and Ulster Defence Association assassinating each other, and the same going for the official IRA and the Irish National Liberation Army. So, you know, very much uh, people's front of Judea, but with people actually killing each other. Yes. Scary stuff. Sounding very tip for tat as well. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, there, there was a lot of that. Meanwhile, the British ended special category status for prisoners, meaning that the prisoners had to wear uniforms instead of their own clothes and lose other privileges. In protest at this, the prisoners took part in the blanket protest, choosing to wear blankets and bedsheets instead of prison uniforms. This would later escalate into the hunger strikes and dirty protests. In April 1981, hunger striker Bobby Sands, a member of the provisional IRA, won a by-election while still in prison. Sands would become the first of the hunger strikers to die after refusing food for 66 days. The violence continued into the 80s, and on the 17th of December 1984, the provisional IRA set off a bomb in Harrods, killing six people. Just nine months later, the provisional IRA attempted their most audacious attack yet. On October 12, 1984, the Conservative Party, at the time led by Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, were having their annual conference at the Grand Hotel in Brighton. In the middle of the night, a bomb went off in the bathroom of one of the rooms, killing five people, including the MP Anthony Berry. Norman Tebbett's wife was left paralysed. The bombing marked an upturn of sophistication of the provisional IRA, no longer were they accidentally blowing themselves up. The bomber, Patrick McGee, had stayed at the hotel three weeks earlier using a pseudonym. While there, he planted the bomb underneath the bath and set a long fuse timer. So, yeah. So, you know, real sophisticated stuff there. You know, he was using bits of a video player and whatever else in order to set a bomb that would go off a whole three weeks after it was put there. So, you know, he's relying on no one looking under the bath, no one finding it. Yeah, it's, it's a really audacious thing to do. And as I think we've discussed before, he would have got Thatcher as well, were she not wearing the Eye of Zoltec that day. <laughs> well, there's this idea that Thatcher herself was extremely fortunate as moments before the bomb went off, she was in a bathroom. And if she had stayed there, she would have been seriously injured or perhaps killed. So as for McGee, he'd booked a hotel room that overlooked Buckingham Palace and it was hypothesised that he was planning to assassinate the Queen. However, he was picked up by police in Glasgow, and while in prison, he completed a PhD on the Troubles. So the Brighton bomber now has a PhD in his own work, which is kind of weird. Well, who who better to learn from but yourself? I suppose so. So shortly after the Brighton bombing, Thatcher and her Irish counterpart, Garrett Fitzgerald, signed the Anglo-Irish Agreement in an attempt to end the Troubles. Soon after it was signed... The 15 Ulster Unionist MPs at Westminster resigned in protest. In 1988, the UK government came up with probably the weirdest thing to come out of the Troubles, the broadcasting ban. Oh, I remember this, yes. Yeah, yeah. It was intended to restrict the speech of 11 people who were seen as orchestrating the Troubles, including Sinn Féin leader Gerry Adams. Broadcasters immediately found a way around it. The ban only applied to their voices and not their images. So to get around the ban... Broadcasters would show videos of Jerry Adams, but dub his voiceover with that of an actor. The ban lasted until 1994, and was satirised brilliantly on the day-to-day, where a Republican politician has to inhale helium before he can talk to a reporter. I still remember seeing a a, a news report, I think it was a BBC one, uh, at the time the ban was lifted, where they started with Jerry Adams having a dubbed voice, and then mixed into (laughs) his own voice halfway through. Yeah, uh, and the voice actor was rubbish. He sounded nothing like Jerry Adams. Well, yeah, so there yeah. You go. Well, so. well, he would have been intended to sound nothing like him. But that is something that I think I'm going to have trouble explaining to younger generations. Like if I'm ever sort of Grandpa Simpson, and people ask me, <laughs> Grandpa, what was life like in the early nineties? <laughs> 
Well, back in those days, Jerry Adams couldn't talk. So you had to have an actor dub over his voice, which was the style at the time. And Mel go, yeah, right, granddad's been on the... <laughs> and a mighty cheer went up from the Conservative government yes. as they had banished Jerry Adams' voice forever. Yeah. Because yeah. it was haunted. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, but that is such a weird thing to explain. Because, like, what on earth did they think that would achieve? It's like, well, I was considering joining the Provos and blowing up a hotel, but then I heard Jerry Adams' voice dubbed, and it's like, no, I'm not going to do it now. Well, for the way you've explained it there, I think maybe it was just an oversight. They they probably thought this will what what we have worded will stop it from being broadcast at all, whereas actually immediately a loophole was found. Yeah, and they made no effort to plug it. Yeah. Okay, that that's weird. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, whilst all this was going on. The killings in Northern Ireland and attacks on the mainland by the provisional IRA continued. On the 20th of July 1990, they bombed the London Stock Exchange, and ten days later they succeeded in killing the Conservative MP Ian Gow by planting a bomb underneath his car. The end of 1990 saw the end of the Thatcher government and John Major took over. Shortly after he took over, the provisional IRA launched three mortar shells at 10 Downing Street while Major was in a meeting. Although they were totally unsuccessful... The attack exposed just how vulnerable 10 Downing Street was, and security around it was ramped up. Just think of how audacious that is to do. You you know the Prime Minister's at number 10, you know he's having a meeting, and you just rock up with a mortar and just fire three shells off and then speed away. Yeah, it could well have worked as well. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Mortars are not the easiest thing to aim. No, no. I, I say that as if I have some authority on the subject. I'd just like to make it clear I don't. (laughs) But I certainly wouldn't want to be aiming a mortar, given it has to go up and then down rather than just across. Exactly, exactly. They're they're better for battlefields rather than confined spaces like streets in London. Oh yeah, indiscriminate damage. Mm, mm. So, then, on February 18th, 1991, just three days before Oh Brother Where Art Thou first aired, a small bomb went off at Paddington Station at four in the morning. It did little damage... But at 7am, the police got a warning claiming to be from the IRA that all mainline stations would be attacked in 45 minutes' time. Despite this, all stations remained open. And as expected, a bomb went off at 7.40am in Victoria Station, instantly killing one person and injuring dozens more. And the bomb had been hidden in a rubbish bin. So, as a kid growing up in England, there are things I remember about the legacy of the Troubles. One we've already talked about, which is Jerry Adams' voice being dubbed. And the other is not being able to find a bin at a train station. Yep. Because after that, they went, well, okay, obviously a bin is a really easy place to hide a bomb. So we'll just get rid of bins in train stations. Yeah. I remember uh, going around train stations and thinking, oh, I've just had a packet of crisps. Where, where, where do I put the packet? Okay, there aren't any bins because of terrorism. All right, I'll just chuck it on the floor and someone will pick it up. Yeah, weird. So the third and final thing I remember is living with the reality of bomb scares. So, in fact, Eddie Izzard mentions them in his very first stand-up show, saying that they're a convenient excuse for being late for work. Oh, sorry, I was like, bomb scare. Because, you know, that is something that people lived with back then, and it's something... It seems like such a long time ago. Like the threat of absolute mutual thermonuclear destruction in the 80s. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's this idea that... And, you know, they didn't just target London the provisional IRA, they targeted all sorts of places. So, yeah, there's this idea that any time there could be a bomb anywhere. And, yeah. There was one in Manchester, wasn't there? There was, coming to that. So the mid to late 90s saw peace talks that would eventually end with the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. However, the provisional IRA were not done, and 1996 saw two major bombings. The first was the Docklands bombing, which saw Canary Wharf blown up, two people killed, and £150 million worth of damage caused after the provisional IRA blew up a truck laden with explosives. This time they gave a 90-minute warning, but the scene was not fully evacuated, hence two people died. And June of 1996 saw the Manchester bombing. The day before Russia were due to play Germany in Manchester as part of Euro 1996, so, so, you know, football, again, this is not long ago, the IRA detonated a 1,500-kilo truck bomb in Corporation Street in Manchester city centre. 
Again, they gave a 90-minute warning and the area was fully evacuated, thus there was no loss of life, but 200 people sustained minor injuries. Now, I was living in Manchester in 2006 for 10-year anniversary, and I'm not trying to condone terrorism or anything, but it was the most courteous act of terrorism ever, basically. So they gave a warning, so everyone got out, and the area of Manchester they targeted was the Arndale Centre, which was one of the most run-down areas of Manchester, and that's saying something. And that, you know, they didn't target somewhere special, like the cathedral or the library or the arena or Old Trafford or anything like that. They blew up an area of the city that badly needed regenerating. And what's the first step of regeneration? Demolition. So yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to find anyone who'll say anything really bad about the Manchester bombing. And, and, and it's like they rebuilt the Arndale Centre and, uh, and they got a Selfridges out of it. Uh, and, 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 the, and it's so much nicer now. And, you know, because it spurned a hell of a lot of regeneration. I was just in the new Ardale Centre the other day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, it's not too bad. Yep. Not too bad at all. Just out of interest, if everyone evacuated, and it did sound like there was, you know, plenty of warning and so on and so forth, how did 200 people get minor injuries? Because of the uh, extent of the damage, this uh, bomb, it blew out shop windows and it just sent lots of glass and debris up into the air. Oh, right, so it was when it was coming back down. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because when it says 200 people injured, you think people losing legs and whatever else, but also, if a bit of glass just flies past you and gives you a little cut, that counts as an injury. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, that's what was going on there. Okay. 1998 saw the signing of a Good Friday Agreement. So this aimed to restore power sharing and bring an end to the Troubles. Despite its signature and acceptance by referendum with 71% of people voting for it, it was opposed by, surprise, surprise, Ian Paisley and his Democratic Unionist Party, citing one of the more controversial aspects, being the release of prisoners convicted of terror offences. Which, is, to be honest, that's a fair enough thing to be concerned about as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. So despite their objections, elections were held for the Northern Ireland Assembly in June 1998. David Trimble of the Ulster Unionists became First Minister, with Seamus Ballon of the Nationalist Social Democratic and Liberal Party, or SDLP, becoming his deputy. Although the Good Friday Agreement was historic, with Tony Blair famously saying, this is not a day for soundbites, but I feel the hand of history on our shoulders. It, God almighty. I know, I know. It was no magic bullet. Sectarian violence continued, albeit much reduced. Added to that, the splinter group calling itself a real IRA bombed the towns of Omar and Banbridge in August 1998. Omar was particularly devastating as the terrorists bungled the warning. They had intended to park a car laden with explosives outside the courthouse, but when they couldn't find a parking space, they panicked and parked the car elsewhere. When the warning was called in, the person making the call didn't know this and told police there was a bomb near the courthouse. Police evacuated people away from the courthouse and inadvertently towards the bomb. It went off and killed 29 people, making it the biggest single loss of life event of the Troubles. Oh. Yeah. And it also just showed how incompetent the real IRA were. And if anything, the Omar bombing only spurred on the peace process. It was condemned by all sides, and the Northern Ireland Assembly became functional not long after, ending decades of direct rule from London. Since then, various paramilitary groups have decommissioned, and Northern Ireland has seen a huge amount of investment in its economy. However, recent events have cast a shadow on things. As of September 2019, the Northern Ireland Assembly isn't sitting. In 2016, it was revealed that the government had lost £480 million in a renewable heating scheme. So, just a few words on that. Renewable heating was heavily subsidised to such an extent that companies could make money simply by using it. So usually you would have a subsidy and it would be the government say, OK, you use this new thing that's good for the environment or whatever, and we'll pay for 20% of it. Whereas with this, they were saying we will pay for all of it. And there were very few checks on who was getting what and what was being paid for. So, so companies who own buildings would just heat the buildings so that they could get the subsidies from the government. So they could do things like heat empty barns because the scheme made it pay. Because of this, Sinn Féin demanded that the First Minister, Arlene Foster of the DUP, resign because she was in charge of the scheme a few years before when she was Trade Minister. 
When she refused, Deputy First Minister Martin McGuinness resigned, and Sinn Féin refused to appoint a successor, which forced an election. The results were very close, with Unionist parties losing their majority. Since then, the two sides haven't come to an agreement, so the Assembly is essentially suspended. Fun times. Add Brexit into the mix, and you've got a mess that historians will be digging through for years to come. What a time to be alive. The more things change, act. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. This is not a time for sound bites, but, <laughs> but the more things change. Yeah, yeah. And if anything, politics in Northern Ireland has become more polarised, because... The, the way it's worked for a while is you have unionist parties, you've got the Ulster Unionists and the Democratic Unionists. And the Ulster Unionists are more mild than the DUP, because the DUP are like creationists who are like, you know, real Bible thumpers. Uh, the party of Ian Paisley. And on the other side, you've got the SDLP, which are considered, again, mild nationalists. And you've got Sinn Féin, who are uh, more extreme nationalists. And on paper, what you want for everyone to get on is for the Ulster Unionists and the SDLP to be in charge. And at the moment, Northern Ireland is completely polarised between the DUP on one side and Sinn Féin on the other. And they really do not make good bedfellows. So yeah, that'll be fun to see what happens in the future. Yes, that special kind of fun that isn't fun. Exactly. But while I was researching this, um, I learned a bit more about the comedian Patrick Keelty. Now, I knew he was from Northern Ireland, but I'm only familiar with him from, like, Saturday night variety shows. So I'm familiar with him as sort of kind of a generic comedian who can, like, handle big, or who can handle big audiences, that sort of thing. What I didn't realise is that he came to fame in Northern Ireland, working his way up through the clubs. And his father, his father was murdered by loyalist paramilitaries. And he used to base his shows off of it. Because he could say, well, you can't tell me I've gone too far when I talk about the Troubles because my dad was killed. Oh, yeah, that's a good little lever there. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. yeah it, it's, 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 it's amazing what you find out, that sort of thing. And of course, if anyone from Northern Ireland is listening to this, they'll be going, well, yeah, of course, of course Patrick Keelty's father was killed. He's, he's kind of famous around here for that. But yeah, there we are. What a mixed uh, mixed episode it's been. You, you <laughs> found out interesting things about Patrick Kilty, and I had to do a Lita Adams. <laughs> yep, afraid so. <laughs> but yeah, there we are. That is, that is my take on the Troubles in Northern Ireland. It is very, very complicated, and, it's, and it is impossible to blame one side. It really is. Um, but yeah, I, st- I, I still think the best solution is United Ireland. But that's just me. Strong words there. <laughs> and strong words on which we shall end. Don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. We should probably put the link to that up again at mm-hmm. some stage. Uh, if you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks very much for listening. Cheers, everyone. See you soon. Bye.